Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Lickin' on Lending, a weekly mortgage market update providing up-to-the-minute information on interest rates, loan programs, and hot industry news relating to the mortgage industry. Brought to you by Transformational Mortgage Solutions. To participate in today's program, our guest call-in line is 646-716-4972. And now, here's your host of Lickin' on Lending, David Lickin'. Good to have you with us, everybody. So pleased that you chose to dial in, log in, listen, download, however you're listening to the program. We appreciate you being here. It's good to have you with us. It's Monday, April 3rd, 2017. We're already in that. Got past April Fool's, although we're going to have our, our hot topic speakers going to tell us about the April Fool's joke he pulled on everybody. Sucked him in again. So uh, Logan Motoshami is with us again. We're revisiting his 2017 housing forecast topic, uh, forecast that he did earlier in the year. We're going to be addressing the latest economic issues. And uh, we'll tell you, start off by telling you about his April Fool's joke. The number of people that got sucked into that one was pretty funny. Also, just want to say again to how pleased we are with our sponsors. We have ArchMI with the RateStar application doing extremely well, and the merger is done with United Guarantee. They're off and running. Motivity Solutions providing real-time reporting, dashboards, and scorecards, as well as Velma, an efficient mortgage marketing and email platform, helping you get the word out about your business. Simplify all the real-time electronic communications exchange and the Mortgage Collaborative, the power of the network. And of course, not without, can't not go without being mentioned, is D&H, moving your world forward through technology. And uh, they've got so many things going there. As many of you know, Vistage, uh, Vista is the one that acquired them just recently, combining them with another company, MySyst, which is a big technology provider out of Europe. A lot of exciting things going on in there. A uh, lot of development, a lot of optimism within D&H, and uh, a lot of new focus on what can happen here. So well, they were pretty well-focused. They're already a 140-year-old company and 5,500 employees and eight, with 8,000 clients in 70 countries, So, but they're growing as they combine with MySys. And um, so it'll be interesting to see where all that goes, but very excited. We did the radio podcast last week from their booth at the technology conference. There were a number of people that were walking by, diving in with um, comments and questions about the merger, all of which went is uh, very, very positive, and I think everyone should be anticipating an even stronger D&H as we move forward. So it's please a pleasure to work with them and have them as sponsors. And then also, we have some new ads coming up from them. I've got to get those uploaded in here. Forgot to do that, so my apologies to our friends over there, David Bolin and the team at D&H. But we're so excited to have you with us today. And I wanted to say again where this podcast is created by mortgage professionals. It is for mortgage professionals. And we're pleased that this is one of the ways that you keep yourself informed on all that's going on. Let's talk about conferences coming up. I am speaking at the New York State MBA convention this week. Uh, It starts tomorrow, I believe, actually, and then it goes through Wednesday. I'm speaking for three hours doing some loan officer training. Very excited about that. So if you're in the New York area and at the conference, look me up. Come on into the session. Really looking forward to spending time with a, a, a good group of people. I uh, spoke there last year, several years now, and uh, well, I just love the people from New York. It's always fun. Also, we then have the IBAT FinTech Showcase that will be in Fort Worth. I'll be speaking at that conference in Fort Worth at the FinTech Conference, April 12th. Be sure to check that out if you're in that area and you're part of the Independent Bankers Association. Come on in. Love to see you, meet you. Also, the MBA's Secondary Conference is again April 30th this year in New York. We'll be doing a podcast from there, as well as May 9th, the Great Rivers Conference is uh, four states come together and put on the NBA State Conference. It's called the Mid or the Great River Four State NBA Conference. It's in Memphis, and again, it's I'll be, I'll be speaking there in the keynote speaker May 9th. We of course we have the the Ohio Mortgage Bankers Association on the 19th. There's, I can't remember how many conferences we're speaking at this year. It's just crazy, but it's really good. Hope to see a number of you at these conferences, and we appreciate our partnership with all of them uh, in each one of these states and, of course, with the MBA. want to talk about the upcoming um, 
some of the things going on at the NBA, uh, specifically the Mortgage Action Alliance, a lot happening there. If you're not signed up for this, if there was ever a time we need to be signed up and supporting the NBA, you do not have to be a member of the NBA. I've said this before, but it really bears repeating. You do not need to be a member of the NBA to be a part of the Mortgage Action Alliance. You get notifications. It allows you to have your voice heard. Sign up. Go to the NBA website and make sure you get signed up. Let's head over to Joe Farr. Always love Joe Farr and his comments. And then we're going to get Les Parker's comments right after that. Get some commentary on what's going on. Joe, good to have you with us. Hey, Dave. As you are here each and every week giving us an update. Well, I'm on your you. website. Looks good here. Well, we're up. Yeah, it's, we're up 7.30 seconds, which is good. Uh, prices began rising uh, just around 10 o'clock, a little before 10 o'clock, which coincided with some data that came out. But the data really should not have been all that good for mortgage uh, MBS prices. But uh, at uh, just before 10, the, the market, the IHS market data, which is not ordinarily a, a market-moving event in the United States. It, it can be as it's measuring overseas data, but it, it's uh, – Manufacturing index came out, and, and it was weaker than um, what it has been. It was weakest in in the last six months, and that's really the only bit of data I can point to besides uh, a little bit of a, a downfall in construction spending. The ISM manufacturing data in the U.S. Uh, the the one that receives more attention in the U.S. came in, um, you know, pretty much as expected. And, and had some internal measures that were really pretty strong. Um, manufacturing hiring is up uh, to the highest level in six years, and, and just about all, well, 17 out of the 18 sectors they track are in expansion mode. So uh, really yeah, a pretty good report. Uh, stocks are uh, lower. They're down 75. They've been lower, uh, and so they've re recovered some of their losses. But We'll take any game we can get, right? And so uh, we are up 7.30 seconds. And uh, last week was really an interesting week. It seemed like every day had some new motive, uh, motivation to, to for MBS prices to rise and, and then to fall. Uh, we saw on Monday a 25 basis point uh, uh, increase in MBS prices, and, and that seemed to be following the Friday – uh, you know, fallout from the president not being able to get his uh, uh, adjustments or amendments to the Affordable Care Act uh, to the floor of the the Congress and or the, the House, and uh, you know it began on Friday and carried over into Monday as being a a bit of a positive thing, and that it kind of puts in, into the investor's mind uh, what abilities will he be able to deliver the the you know, business-friendly policies that he ran on. And so um, MBS prices improved on the fact that maybe growth won't be quite as uh, as strong and inflation might, might not be quite as high. So it was a good thing for MBS prices. Then on Tuesday, uh, consumer confidence came out, and it was, it was incredible. It spiked to the highest level since uh, December 2000. Uh, you know, and, and that, that – completely reverse the benefit of uh the Trump you know Trump's inability to to push the affordable character revisions uh, revisions uh, uh no I'm sorry dovish comments from the ECB on Wednesday uh you know the ECB investors have been reading the, the ECB is becoming a bit more hawkish than I think the ECB wanted them to read it into and so anonymous ECB officials kind of push the market uh, in a favorable way for MBS prices and other longer-term interest rate-related uh, assets by uh, by comments that would indicate they are not quite as hawkish as the market thinks and, and that uh, their uh, ongoing QE may not be revised as strongly, as quickly as investors had thought. Thursday and Friday were sort of uh, offsetting days. But anyway, for the week... Uh, very little net change, but a lot of movement uh, in between, uh, uh, or from day to day. Uh, economic events that came out during the week that I haven't talked about: the fourth quarter GDP was revised to the third quarter. The third revision was to a 2.1% growth rate for the fourth quarter. That's up from 2.0. Uh, 
uh, the second look. The first look was 1.9, so uh, uh, ending at 2.1% for the fourth quarter. Personal personal income and core PCE pretty much matched expectations. Core PCE remained steady at uh, 1.8%, but the overall PCE number rose above 2% for the first time. Uh, this is the first time, not first time since 2012, which is a little bit to, uh, to be concerned about. And uh, Dave, there were a number of Fed speakers at the end of last week that all seemed to be talking about the balance sheet. You know, we've talked about yeah. how significant that could be. That and, it could be huge. That it could be, but what the the message is that they will will maybe continue to raise the Fed funds rate a couple more times this year, and then wait uh, on Fed funds rate increases and begin to implement. Um, policy changes regarding the reinvestment of uh, principal that they receive off their portfolio of whether it be Treasury and MBS or MBS or Treasury or one than the other is still details to be worked out. But the message is don't be too concerned about this. When it happens, it's going to happen in a gradual form. And, uh, uh, you know, quite frankly, some of what they uh, have to do with reinvestments going to become uh, smaller and smaller. I was just looking back over the last uh, six months or so at the level of reinvestment that the Fed had to execute uh, monthly has risen from an average of about $40 billion a month, which is a pretty big percentage of overall production, overall new issuance of MBS, to where they're now projecting at least what they anticipate for the period from mid-March to mid-April is only $18 billion. And that has to do with the fact that uh, uh, portfolio is not paying off as quickly. So it's still uh, overall production has come down. So as a percentage, it's still a significant percentage, but it's not as big a percentage as it has been in the past. So uh, that's good reason not to be overly concerned about what might happen, especially if they run into roll into that in a in a uh, gradual way, meaning maybe they reinvest 50 percent of uh, what pays yeah. off gets reinvested and, and so forth. So thought it was interesting, and, and it's something that we as an industry really do need to keep our uh, eyes and ears glued to. Uh, the the current, uh, during this this week, we anticipate, well, there are only two really significant events to, to focus on now that the ISM manufacturing index is behind us, and that is ISM services is going to come out on Wednesday, and then the jobs report on Friday. Uh, expecting 180,000 net new jobs, uh, which is down from the 235,000 in uh, February, and uh, average hour- hourly earnings staying the same at, at a three tenths increase per the same as last month. So, um, so. Pay attention on uh, Wednesday and Friday. Pay attention, yeah. Yes, there is. Uh, it's going to be an interesting week. This has already been a phenomenally interesting year, and we're going to be talking more about that with Logan in uh, in the Hot Topics segment. Really looking forward to getting your take on some of his comments as well as participating in that discussion, Joe. Appreciate you being here. Got a great yeah. product. I don't know how people don't use this product, but you're going to hear about it in just a minute. But before we run over to let you know more about how to get signed up with MBS Quote Line listeners, let's go listen to Les Parker's comments, get some of his thoughts on what he is seeing from a macro perspective on the economy. Thanks, Dave. This is Market Logics Live, sponsored by Loan Logics. May PM. She wrote Tesco Letter. This song parody deals with Brexit. Prime Minister Theresa May's letter to Donald Tusk, EU president, starts Brexit. A survey of German companies found that 10% intend to shift investments to EU countries from the UK. There is a popular misconception that what happens in Europe stays in Europe. U.S. capital markets are influenced by dynamics across the world. The Brexit vote drove U.S. interest rates to historic lows. The shift in capital, and for that matter, the shift in power, will influence U.S. interest rates over the next two years. These views are my own. Go to LoanLogics.com to subscribe to my daily newsletter. And we're going to get some commentary on his commentary. It's <laughs> just a little bit in the Hot Topics segment. We'll be right back after this brief break. 
Looking for that competitive edge? MBS QuoteLine delivers live market coverage for originators. Get up-to-the-minute mortgage market news and analysis as events occur. Get MBS prices as trades happen. Straight to your computer, email, cell phone, or PDA. Know in advance when your investors will reprice. Make better lock float decisions and increase your income. Be the expert your clients expect and know what's moving interest rates right now, tomorrow, and beyond. MBS QuoteLine, delivering live market coverage for originators. Learn more about MBS QuoteLine today at MBS mbsquoteline.com mbsquoteline.com 646-716-4972 The Lickin' on Lending Show is back. Here is your host, David Lickin'. It's good to have you with us, everybody. There's so much going on in the market, and there's a lot going on on the switchboard here. I'm uh, emailing uh, or texting back and forth with Paul Malo. He is, uh, says he's dialed in, but he is not showing up on the switchboard, so hopefully he will be back with us here shortly with some comments. So, Paul, if you're listening to this, reconnect. Make sure you press 1 and uh, speak to the host, and I'll get you on. But let's move over to Alice Alvey. Alice, always pleasure to good to have you. Always a pleasure to have you here, and uh, love to get your update for our listeners. So much information in so little time. Yes. <laughs> Hi, Dave. Hi, everybody. <laughs> so the first thing on my list that um, we haven't talked a lot about yet is the CFPB put out a request for information to really collect some more information about um, alternative data to be used in credit modeling. And uh, at first, you know, when you hear about an RFI, the first thing is that, you know, don't worry, there isn't any new big news that's going to come out and actually be implemented yet. This is the first stage for them to collect information on alternative credit methods, um, the calculations, how it can benefit the industry. And so for those of you wishing for more business out there, which I think a lot of folks are always looking for, this is actually what they say in this um, RFI. There are 45 million Americans that fall in between either unscorable or their credit invisible. So 26 of the 45 are what the CFPB called credit invisible. They have no major credit cards. And then the other 19 million are flat out. They're unscorable because their credit is too thin or too stale. So that's a lot of people that you would love to be able to have enter into the market or at least, you know, give us a portion of those folks so we can come up with an alternative way to be able to show that this person um, would be able to repay us and we would have a, a, you know, systematic and fair way of doing that. So in this proposal, it's very interesting to read. We do need comments from the industry. You can go to the CFPB website or regulations.gov. You'll be able to post your comments there and talk about the benefits to the market. Uh, Now, some of the things, they, they have very specific questions in here. You do need to read the questions near the end of the document, respond specifically to the five topics that they're covering, And I think very interesting is what should be used in making this determination because there are folks out there who think, should we go as far as including, for example, social media activity or any kind of web interaction? In other words, beyond what we know of as non-traditional credit like your utilities and rent, but really for the folks who even have limited information on that, would we go into how stable has your residency history been? We already take employment stability, but then add education and web interactions and social media. Um, so, And then there's some good links to various studies and uh, white papers on this from the uh, FTC and OTC within the proposed rule. So, or I'm sorry, request for information. So I think this is a good one. Um, you know, things start at this level for us to get our voices heard, and I think this is a good place to get um, some alternative credit information in front of the CFPB to encourage the agencies to take more of this and find a, a good way for us to get that. So comments are due by May 19th. In terms of the rest of the pieces of legislation, we have about 10 of them that we're watching for you right now. There hasn't been any move movement on anything that's very substantial. So we have um, legislative pieces. I know we want to make sure we have plenty of time for Logan, so I, I won't give a full summary, but we have a few things pending for modifying TILA. Um, the, the wording is out in the proposed rule for ECOA. You can find the wording, but it actually doesn't have dates yet. And from my initial uh, uh, quick read of the ECOA changes to line them up with um, HUMDA are really not anything that's going to change the definition of an application very dramatically in our compliance. It's really trying to stabilize a few things in the regulation uh, so that Reg B lines up with Reg C a little bit. So nothing dramatic right there. 
Um, but we will keep an eye out for you on the uh, legislative front right now. No big movement on things, but we have this RFI that you should go comment on about alternate credits. And the ECOA verbiage is now out and not any big earth-shattering changes. So we'll watch that for you as well. Um, so, Dave, that's my quick report as of today. Good. Good stuff, Alice. Good. Appreciate you coming on. Lots of information, and soon we'll have the new website up. I just got heard. I just heard from the new uh, from the developer about the new website, and they said it's ready to launch. So we'll very soon be able to start getting your notes up into the website, and people able to hear you just your segment if they want to go back and listen to that. So very exciting stuff, folks. We're going to be right back with a few quick after a few quick ads and. Um, Here's the ad about mortgage you and how to get signed up with them, as well as Simplify. We'll be right back. If you have questions about mortgage regulations, Indicom Mortgage U has free answers. If you need ideas about how to reinvent your organization, Indicom Mortgage U will share great ideas. When you need help at any step of the loan process, give us a call or send an email. The Indicom team of experts have been helping mortgage players from origination through servicing for over 30 years. Your success is our focus. Whether it's a quick question or long-term support, portfolio, conventional, or government lending, it's a competitive market. So let Indicom Mortgage U give you the edge. Simplifile has technology that gives you the ability to collaborate with settlement agents via real-time chat and messaging, allowing you to track changes, send, receive, and validate documents, as well as obtain status updates and deal with issues as they arise. All of this in a real-time electronic communication exchange. And best of all, you have a complete audit trail of all communications. To learn more, go to Simplifile.com or call our good friend Nancy Alley at 1-800-460-5657. So good to have you with us, everybody. Sam Garcia has joined us, dialing in from sunny, warm, beautiful Dallas, Texas. Good to have you here, friend. Appreciate you. Hey, Dave. How you doing? It's good to be on. Um, we put out our uh, biggest mortgage lenders report. That's a, a big report for us. Um, we basically uh, list the biggest lenders, mortgage originators, uh, for 2016, and we get that data from – quarterly reports from publicly traded companies and from our quarterly mortgage origination survey that we put out and the companies complete that uh, give us some good details about their operations. Of course, Wells Fargo last year maintained its long-time standing as both the biggest loan originator and the biggest servicer. Um, But moving down the list, among the top 10 originators, Bank of America bumped U.S. Bank from the number four spot in 2015. Uh, PHH fell from number seven in 2015 to number 10 last year, and uh, of course, PHH is likely to drop off the list entirely this year. Um, both Citigroup and Flagstar dropped off the top 10 list in 2016, and um, compared to 2015, originations during uh, last year at Fairway Independent Mortgage jumped 58%. That was the most of any company we track, which includes um, almost all of the top 25 mortgage lenders in the country. Um, Some other big movers uh, on an annual basis were Caliber Home Loans. They climbed 57% uh, in volume from 2015. Movement Mortgage was up 54%, and Primary Capital Mortgage increased 52%. Um, On the downside, uh, annual production at Stonegate Mortgage sank by 23%. That was more than any other company we tracked. And also uh, some big downside movers were Walter Investment, which was down a fifth, and Citigroup, which was down 19%. Um, We put out our uh, mortgage market index. Of course, I tell you about that each week, and that's a gauge of uh, upcoming mortgage originations. It was down 12% last week. It was actually the second week in a row business was down. Um, That index, which we base on uh, open-close lock volume, uh, was pulled down by purchase money activity, which was down 15%. So purchases kind of dragged down everything last week. Um, we put out some uh, a report on uh, monthly agency issuance. We get that data from EMBS, and that data indicated that during March, fixed-rate MBS issuance on behalf of Fannie, Freddie, and Jenny was $91 billion. Um, that was down 4% from a month earlier and down 6% from a year earlier. And behind the decline was Freddie Mac, where its $23 billion in uh, issuance last month uh, was down 
13% from February and 14% from March, um, so March of the prior year. So Freddie was really behind what was going on uh, in the, the latest month. Um, the American Bankers Association released the results of its annual real estate survey report. Um, retail share of mortgage originations at banks fell to 81% in 2016 from 83% in 2015. So banks basically saw retail account for a little less business, uh, a little bit less share of their business than it did the prior year. And on the upside was uh, the correspondent slash wholesale lending. Um, that was that share widened to 11% in 2016 from the 7% the previous year. So third-party originations took up a little bit more of a bank's business last year. Um, Nine percent of the bank's residential originations that were uh, were non-QM loans, and that share tumbled from 14 percent in 2015. Uh, so we saw non-QM share go down. Uh, I, as I've mentioned in the past, uh, I suspect this is the result of high refinance activity, which is basically low-hanging fruit. Why take any risk if you can just pick up that stuff and keep producing it? And I think we'll see non-QM share pick up this year. Um, PHH disclosed last week uh, the upcoming departure of several of its senior executives, and among the exits is President and CEO Glenn Nemesina. Um, he originally took that post in 2012, so taking over from Messina, I think it's in June he leaves, uh, is going to be the company's CFO, Robert Crowell. And, of course, these moves are coming as PHH has slashed the size of its business, and as I mentioned, they'll very likely come off the top ten uh, originators uh, list this year for 2017. Um, one other piece of big news last week, everybody's been hearing about this, and now it's a done deal. Caliber Home Loans announced on Friday that it completed its acquisition of bank home loans assets from Bank of California. And with that acquisition, Caliber says its sale force, sales force now exceeds 1,800 people. Its retail location count is more than 340. <laughs> and its servicing portfolio now exceeds $110 billion. So uh, those are some of the, the biggest stories we uh, covered in the last week or so. Some big stories. Yeah, some big, big stories. That's really interesting, It's uh, especially when you look at what the potential this could mean and how the shift in market share is. Uh, so Caliber's actually positioned themselves really, really well with this. Of course, they were acquired, and uh, so they have not unlimited amount of capital, but they have plenty of capital to continue this kind of crazy growth. So great report, Sam. Appreciate so much you being here with us each and every week, as you do so well, keeping us updated on what's happening. Folks, we're going to be right back after a brief word from ArchMI. Uh, staying ahead of the herd. I love this message that Shawnee just developed. So we'll be right back after this. Thanks, David. Glad to be a sponsor. Spring home buying's underway. The supply is tight and interest rates are rising. Are lenders ready to compete for purchase business or will they get left behind? Archimai Rate Star is the best way to stay aggressive and stay ahead of the herd. Use our risk-based pricing program to assess individual loan risk more precisely. With Rate Star, lenders lead their market the way Archimai leads the MI industry. Lead with us. I like that. Lead with them. Lead with us. Good good message. By the way, Sam Garcia does a great job with Mortgage Daily. Check out his website at mortgagedaily.com or get a hold of Sam at 214-521-1300. My apologies, Sam. That messed up. And as we're looking at uh, getting through all the what we have to do, excited to hear Logan Motoshami's comments here in a little bit later in the Hot Topics segment. Before we go there, let's check up with the Profit Doctor. Good to have you here, friend. Hey, Dave Lickin. It's great to be on Lickin on Lending. Hey, you know what, Dave? It's that time of year. It is time oh. to get your geek Time to get your geek on. We're going to get our geek on, Dave. And I know you love doing <laughs> that, doing detailed accounting, ledgers, journal entries, and statements of condition, along with changes in cash flow. So we're launching our mortgage accounting webinars through the MBA, mba.org education. The webinars start in about two weeks. It's still time to get registered and sign up to attend our four-week series of mortgage accounting. So that's coming up, Dave. Ready to get your geek on. So Dave, I have get another Get your quick geek on. Mind. I like that. That's good. That's good. <laughs> that's good. I got another I want to just I want to reminisce back 3 months just real quick, back to January. 
you know, just about everybody's volumes were down. And when volumes are down, cash is tight. And, you know, we're holding our breath and hope the volume climbs again. And we're, we're back and we've, we're we worried about cash and we've got to have money for payroll and what are we going to do. And we wake up in the middle of the night thinking about all the things we wish we would have done to prevent this from being a challenge like save money for the winter when you're saving the good times, you've got the cash for the bad times or even get a financing facility, an MSR financing facility, or you know, cut expenses so you don't lose in the winter, or launch outsourcing to make your, your costs more variable. So we think about all these things in the midst of the chaos, but then we forget about it when things are going well. And so you know, we're on the upswing, and things are going better, and we've got money now, so we're not going to worry about it anymore. And what I would suggest is that let's not forget about the pain. Let's Let's continue to pursue the things that need to be done. And I'm going to give you just three quick essential tools for survival. And those are, you know these all very well, Dave, got to have a strategic plan for your business. I know people roll their eyes and go, why do you, no, we don't. We're going to, we're going to make loans. We don't need a plan to make loans. So, but the plan would cover who, what, where, when, why, and how you do what you do. And part of that will help you figure out how to survive the downturns along with your dynamic financial forecast, which is, includes a, a cash projection. And, and the one that people hate even more is a budget, and then doing a budget to uh, actual analysis called a variance analysis. And, you know, that, that, that's really the key, Dave, because that's where we yeah. are going to fix. We're going to fix what's broke. So if we thought we were going to do one thing and ended up doing something different, why? That's our opportunity. Uh, the variance analysis is management. That's where we're going to measure and then adapt. We're going to measure and manage. And part of our management is around encouraging and reward accountability and consequence. You're noting a theme, Dave, in the things that I'd like to talk about. Because I see this as something that our lenders just, they, they just, they are really bad at this. The accountability yeah. and consequence part especially. We've got to measure yeah. and manage. So, you know, this will eliminate most of those sleepless January nights if we'll just plan now for what's going to happen when things change again. So bottom line, have a plan, stay on the plan, follow through with the plan. You know, when, we're, when we deal with origination strategy, it's all about this. Have a plan, stay with the plan, follow through with the plan, make your calls, make your follow-ups, do the right things. So why can't we, if we require our originators to have a plan for marketing and require them to make phone calls, why can't we manage the business in the same way and have a plan and be accountable for the activity that leads to the right outcome so we don't have this January sleepless nights? So there you go, Mr. Lickin. Good stuff. What do you think? Good stuff. Yeah, I like it. I like that. I mean, yeah, it's amazing. Uh, I was talking to one of the leaders who's going to be just announcing his retirement. He'll be joining us in the in my, joining me in the consulting business. And he was. I was talking about this, and and I said, get ready because when you get on this side to start working as a consultant, you'll see how many people out there and how many businesses are run in such a manner that doesn't have the discipline that you would otherwise suspect. And uh, it, it, it is a bit surprising. It's not to put lenders down. What we're doing, and I know your comments and my comments even focusing on this, and is to encourage them to rise up to these standards. Because if they don't, this business is getting more and more competitive, and you're going to find yourself more – it's going to be more difficult for you to compete in this ever more competitive, consolidating world. That's my comments, and I'll let you get the last word in on that. <laughs> Very good, Dave. Very good. I agree completely. And I guess the key is don't don't be surprised by randomness. Expect randomness because if you measure randomness, you'll actually end up with a pattern. And we're gonna we're yeah. gonna predict the future based on a range of outcomes and manage our business accordingly. As that's there's uh, that's good stuff, and we could get into a whole podcast just on randomness. So much great information. A lot of people need to know that you exist and you're a valuable resource to the industry, and I'm grateful to have you on here whenever you can make it. Get a hold of Andy at andy at mbs-team.com to pull more on this wealth of knowledge and information out there. Good job, Andy. Appreciate it so much. 
Folks, one of the things we talk about regularly is KPIs, key performance indicators, and uh, we always love to uh, focus on that. John Maynell, who I had the privilege of seeing last week in Chicago, was with us, and we have the KPI of the week, and we're starting off back looking at the app to funded close cycle time. So, John Maynell, give us your insights on the latest KPI. Hello, thanks very much, David. Always good to be here. And this week's key performance indicator is application to funded cycle time. Uh, since the arrival of TRID, cycle time measurements have obviously come to the forefront, everything from looking at the entire application to funded cycle uh, down to sub-cycles or cycle time between milestones. Everyone wants to compress cycle time, and the beauty of this type of strategic KPI is that it can be tied to operational KPIs that track the tasks or processes within the cycle that contribute to how long or short that cycle is. So operational KPIs can be thought of as the cause, and strategic KPIs are the effect. Uh, and balancing and monitoring these key measurements really can drive performance, and this demonstrates again that what gets measured gets results. And with that, David, I will turn it back to you. Thanks very much again. So good to have our friends there at Motivity. They do a great job with their dashboards. Check them out, Motivity Solutions dot com or call them at three zero three seven two one nine thousand. Well I'm excited to have back on the program again Logan Motoshami, a very good friend, someone who I have come to respect and an increasing number of people, I'd like to think because of the podcast, but certainly not. He is just because of the podcast. It helps get the word out, but he is probably one of the most prolific get that word out. Prolific. Prolific writers bloggers, commentators out there, and he's not just doing his own, but he's out and making comments on others out there. But he pulled off a really fun April Fool's joke and pulled for another year some whole lot of people into it. So welcome back to the microphone, Logan Motoshami, based in Southern California. Logan, good to have you on, friend. It's great to be here, David. You always have so much wit and wisdom that you have uh, and your comments about the market. Uh, just the fact that you know it, you are an owner in your family business, your dad's mortgage company, you're a loan originator, but your passion for this business has really landed you the uh, uh, attention of na companies such as National Mortgage News, uh, the chart guy, the housing guru, as some refer to you as, uh, but your astute analysis of economic data and years of direct lending experience really gives you a unique and informed, unbiased, I'd like to think it's unbiased, perspective on the financial markets. Now, I guess some of those that disagree with you would say it's not so unbiased, but you really do an independent good job of being an independent critical thinker we're thrilled to have you back so first of all we've teased this up a couple of times tell everybody about your uh <coughs> the april fool's joke you pulled on on the markets and on the world well one of the things that we've seen now in america is, is basically yellow journalism or headline sensationalism or fake news and a lot of this is sucking into a kind of an anti-american theme in terms of there's an impending collapse about to happen and those get a lot of clicks and likes and attention out there, and there's a lot of trolls out there. So to counteract this on every April Fool's, I probably can't pull this off next year, I create a headline called the U.S. is near recession. And what happens is that people see that headline, and they start sharing it, liking it, but the entire article <laughs> is mocking eight years of what I'm, I'm telling you. I have never seen such pathetic, bad macroeconomic data analysis <laughs> And these are one trick ponies. These are people who are just trying to market to you. And um, they don't really have a background in economics. And because they don't have a background in economics, they say things that just do not create some kind of great recession. And we, I collected since 2009 uh, articles and names of people, and it's the same people over and over again. So when I on April Fools, I always do this, and the title is the U.S. is near a recession. People go ahead and they share it, and then they read it, and they go, "Oh, I got duped again." But uh, this year is, is is much different because we really break <laughs> down some of these really bad macro themes on why America is going to collapse, and hopefully people can learn that. Don't listen to these people; they're just one trick ponies. Every single day, the world is about to end, and um, they they should be taken with a grain of salt at best. 
Well, the best thing is, is you know, I think you call them accurately. I mean, yeah, what, yeah, it's hard to know what the motive of their heart is. Are they just deceived? Are they looking at it wrong? With their, what's their measuring stick? But, I mean, they're in some cases, they're, they're I mean, that's, 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 yeah, I mean, that's a pretty strong statement. But, I mean, I, uh, but the reality is, is you wonder, why would you, why would you have this, given that? So let's take a look back. We had you on at the first of the year. And let's go back, take a look at your 2017 housing forecast. And uh, we had you on in early January. For those that have not listened to that, I encourage everyone to go back and listen to that. We're not going to rehash that. But I want to see if there's any updates to that housing forecast. So existing home sales, I was looking this year for no growth. I didn't think we could be able to pull last year's, you know, last year the purchase application data was showing 25% growth in the heat months, and we had a growing mortgage demand, and we had falling cash buyers. So last year looked good. I was looking for about $5.43 million. We ended the year at $5.45 million. But I didn't think we would have that uh, uh, growth again. So far, existing home sales are outperforming my expectations. But what you have right now is that, Economists and housing analysts, again, front-loaded too, too much sales in their data, and once again, they're blaming inventory. And last year, you know, I was telling your viewers, a lot of people don't fall for the low inventory trap, and what happened in January, inventory hit a cycle low, existing home sales hit a cycle high, but mortgage demand is only back to 1998 levels. So, Overall, your optimism, your bullish forecast about the housing market still stands. Well, it's it's. it's I, I, it's there's a little pausing there. I mean, I, what was that? I mean, it, well, here's here's the thing. I don't think this housing cycle from 2008 to 2019 is strong. Um, okay, see, so that, that's exactly what I wanted to get. That's where I wanted to go, so, Logan, was because so, a lot of people are considering this as a strong housing cycle. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and the problem is, is, that, is that that was my main thesis when I started to write in 2010 because I didn't think the housing community was giving a fair uh, um, description of how the housing market is. And uh, if you listen to these people, they blame two things, tight lending and low inventory. But demographics right. were not strong for housing. So uh, we're going to have three straight years of six million uh, total home sales. That's where it should be, but you're going to hear from the media and from economists that the only reason that home sales are higher is inventory because the housing market is strong. I 100% disagree with that. I always will until we get to a better demographic profile. That's years 2020 to 2024. So uh, my, you know, my recent article was uh, existing home sales look excellent because it's from my perspective. And yeah. what you're going to see is that, that last existing home sales report, everybody was upset with it. They said it was a bad report, inventory low, except the previous month we hit a cycle high in demand. Housing has way too much marketing in it in terms of its macroeconomic analysis. And I, I want to take that marketing out of it. I want to just look at the raw data and explain why demographics matter, why affordability is an issue. So we're going to have $6 million total home sales no matter what but the theme is that because people put again once again too much sales growth they're going to blame inventory and I don't, I, I don't think that's that's the sophisticated way to look at this housing cycle because everyone's sales estimates were off both for existing home sales and new home sales this entire cycle because this we just don't have that kind of demographic push yeah, I, I, that's what's what I find really interesting, and I want to get, invite uh, Joe, Andy, and Alice to jump in on this at any point in time. Joe, when you're looking at these, when you're listening to Logan talk about some of this, you know what questions start coming to your mind? Or I mean, I hear what you're saying, Logan, but I want to get, I, I, I think there's, I want to draw out some of the rare thinking behind that. So with that, I'm going to toss the mic to Joe if you have anything. Well. Uh, a recent report showed days in inventory is falling dramatically, and um, well, I say I say like it was uh, days in inventory averaged 45 days. That was down from 59 days a year ago. So that's a pretty big drop, which has to do with uh, you know several things, right? Uh, 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 demand. It's a good reflection of demand and and uh, you know buying power and and. Maybe it's uh, an indication of uh, 
pent up inventory. I know I hate to go but, there. Well, so how do you read that, Logan? Yeah, here's, great, here's great question. They they use inventory to households, and they say it's at a 17 year low. Okay, and then I counteract with that and says inventory. I mean, the sales to demand, if you want to use it on household, is at an all time low. So if they say 17 year lows of inventory. I say 19 year lows in demand. Because the reality is that in, since 1996, and that's where my baseline works from, we have never had a six-month inventory year unless there's a housing bust. And 2017 is going to look like 2004. As the cycle goes on, home prices get higher. It's harder and harder to move up. Inventory falls, but there's enough inventory to bring demand up, except your total demand is really back to 1998 levels. It's actually worse even for new home sales. Monthly supply for new home sales is actually higher from 2012 to 2017 than any period from 1999 to 2005. So you have the supply there. You just don't have the demand. And it wasn't a problem in 1999 to 2004. Nobody talked about that, except the NAR always talks about inventory low. It's always low until there's a housing bust. And that's the, that's the language they've used for 20 years now. So, to me, it's a bigger problem of affordability and the lack of ability to move up, but this cycle has been very strong in renting. Uh, we had about 10 million units of rental units in 2000. I think we're about near 18 million units in renting because, because we have a lot of young people who are renting. We have uh, older people who are downsizing to renting. We have a lot of people who foreclose on their house. Over near 8 million homes have been foreclosed. A lot of those people, the boomerang buyer theory did not happen because they couldn't get the same kind of loans so they're renting. So the demand is still for renting. So I, I always have a problem with the low inventory being the thesis when we have never had really a six-month supply of inventory outside of 2006 to 2011. And that's when I, when I talk about we, it might need another recession to bring supply on because these homeowners now, they're the best we've ever seen. They're not going to have a recast uh, to force them into selling their house. Really, the move up buyer, kids are going to be the main factor for somebody to move up. And I just think it's harder and harder for people in this country to move up. And this is the really inventory problem that we have. This, is, this has been here for 20 years. That's where I want the discussion to go. But if somebody had, you know, I, I was looking for 5.8 million existing home sales and we're going to end up at 5.5. Well, I missed only because of inventory. Then you look at the total picture of demand. We're not even at 1999 levels. We have 165 million people working. Unemployment claims are at 44-year lows. Job openings at 5.6 million. Interest rates under 5% since early 2011. And you're back to 1998. Yes. Yeah. Alice, I mean, I want you to jump in on if you want at this time. I've got some more questions, but if you want to jump in, go ahead. Well, I was just, you just brought up the last point, right? You brought up about the interest rate um, stability, really, that we've had. We've had some changes here more recently, but that you compare it back to 2004 when rates were probably more like, what, uh, upper fives. So how does that play into the cycle then and where you see interest rates going and the, the impact of rates on the market? Because as you know, I mean, we're focused on purchases because the refis have dried up. So yeah. I'd like to get your thoughts in comparison there. So one of the things is that people thought the last cycle was all, you know, bubble supply demand. We actually had good demographics from 1996 to 2007. You see that in the purchase application data. You see that in the sales data. But interest rates were, you know, fives, low sixes. But the loans that were given from 2003 to 2006, the 30-year six was not that uh, uh, important of an issue because people were taking interest-only loans. They were taking teaser rates. Oh, right. <laughs> Now, yeah, get me the lowest payment. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so back then, you had what I call the facilitation of housing demand on exotic debt structures to make the cost of housing lower. Compared to now, you don't have that anymore. That's gone. So people say, well, you know, mortgage rates are still low historically. That's not the way to look at it. You look at home prices rising, interest rates falling, bigger and bigger homes. This country has been building bigger and bigger homes since 1975. We've had smaller and smaller family sizes. Those are big loans. So the interest rates do affect the, the payment, but the size of the loans needed now uh, makes housing less affordable than what the affordability index is because the affordability index in this country is based on Americans having 20% down, 
no revolving credit card debt. Uh, car payments now, the average car payment now is over $500 now. There's all these other factors that go into housing, the equilibrium between the, or the housing market and everyone's finances. And that's where I think more attention needs to be brought on, especially for the move-up buyer, because it's, it's difficult. The, the higher the prices go, the harder it is to sell. You call it selling equity. You need a minimum 28 to 33% equity to sell your house, have the equity to, to put into a bigger home. So, so I, you know what? In, if interest rates have a five handle, that could be a problem because when when the taper happened in 2014, interest rates went to four and a half. Yeah. You look at the purchase application data adjusting to population; it was the lowest bubble ever in U.S. history. Is is that just a temporary impact, though? Because five percent is still ridiculously low compared from a historical standpoint. I mean, well, the, is, the, is the it interest a, rate is low, but the payment isn't because the home sizes are bigger. You know, people. Uh, say, I bought my I house see in night. In 1984, for you know, 13%. Well, your home was forty thousand dollars. You know, now you know. Oh uh, uh, yeah, yeah. Good point. That's a really good point. Especially, especially in Southern California. You know, you're you're you know here in the city of Irvine, a single family homes a million dollars now. So people say, I bought my home Crazy. X for 12% rates. Your house was thirty, forty thousand dollars back then. It's different these days. You can't. The interest rate it needs to be looked at in context with the size of the loan. The principal interest tax insurance inflation price of what a housing cost is, and this is why this cycle you just don't have you don't have the demographics to push demand much stronger. You see that in the new home sales. The new home sales haven't even started a year at six hundred thousand because those homes are more expensive than anything. All right, does that mean we're going to see a change in the way what builders are going to need to build? Is that that where the part of the adjustment has to happen? At least the, on the new home the, the, the market? The most important housing data to me right now is that median home prices have gone nowhere for new homes. That is the most bullish data line I could present to people because that means the builders have finally got it, that if they need to, if they need to have more unit sales, they have to bring smaller homes into the market. Now, the problem okay. is, is that you know, we went from 1,500-square-foot homes in 1975 to now it's over 2,500. So when the demand actually gets better, do we have the right supply for our young Americans to be able to buy a home? And I would tell you, no, we don't. And can the builders actually switch to provide more affordable housing? I'm not sure because they have profit margins to worry about. They have shareholders to worry about. So do we have the right supply? We don't have the right supply right now. But in a few years, we're going to have all these young Americans ready to buy. I'm not sure if we have the right supply for them. Okay, so that's setting up something that your April Fool's joke uh, that you pulled on the world. There's some possibility that some type of a correction is coming as a result of that. If we have a supply in the market and and, we're, and the buyers that are moving up, I, I read one article that said most the it was Zillow that published this and and they just did a webinar on this recently. It said that instead of millennials buying their starter home, they're now waiting to buy their what would be equivalent to a second home if you look at previous generations. So going back to this, does I'd love your thoughts on that. I'm trying to figure out how to articulate well, the question. Here, here, there is one in there somewhere. One of, the, one of the theories that I have with housing is that by the years 2020 to 2024, you're going to have a lot of people ages, you know, uh, 29 to 42. So uh, right. they could be renting up until then. Now, the question is that single women are buying homes at twice the rate of men. So do these, do these people who get married, because really it is, when you buy a bigger house, most likely it is you're married and you're about to have kids. One of the things that I've seen in this cycle is that people are not even moving up by selling their house. They sell their house to rent a bigger home because they can't afford that bigger house to get qualified for it. So, they're, they're, again, this front lines all the way to 2020 to 2024 because at that point you're going to have a lot of young Americans who are married more than now, about to have kids. Kids are the biggest reasons for you to move up. Okay, they talk yep. about this rate lock trap that people are just not going to sell their homes because they payment too high. But I guarantee you, children will force you to move up, especially if you have a condo, one or two bedroom condo. You need to buy, you need to move up, you need to move to the suburbs. That's a 2020 to 2024 story. And my concern is that we won't have the right supply for them when the demand, and what that does is it pushes prices even much higher. 
We're okay now. It's interesting. Cycles, there's, there's, there's no overinvestment thesis in housing right now to create a crash or a negative. Even with the taper, um, we still had uh, oh, about 5.4 million total home sales that year, the year that you know people thought it was really bad. So it's just not a very strong housing cycle that gives you legs pushing up forward when the demand really gets good. So that's why I, I argue against the housing is strong because if housing is strong, new home sales should be near eight, nine hundred thousand right now with all the people that we have working. It's just not, it's just don't have the demographic profile to push housing stronger. And new homes are just so much more expensive than existing homes. So, What's really interesting as I'm thinking about this is I know several couples that bought a condo or bought a small home. They now have kids. They're renting their home and renting – I mean they, they rent out their existing home and rented a bigger home for this season. They're holding on to it. And so that's I think we may that's, – That's something I go ahead. see never – yeah, I, I, I see that here. Southern California is really unique, so I, I, I hate to use this, this area as an example. But <laughs> yeah, I was just talking. I'm just talking so to someone who watches. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Finish your thought. Then I was going to comment on something there. I think that's interesting. It's just, it's just that you know I, I call it selling equity. If, if if the housing economists and analysts are going to use their affordability index, then you have to you have to create a selling equity index to have that 20% down for a bigger home. And I, I've seen people say, you know what, I can't I can't buy that house. Um, I I'm just yeah. going to rent my house out or even sell my house to go rent a bigger house because I could get a rental for a bigger home. This is more right. of a Southern yeah. California phenomenon. I, I, think, I, I don't think in the Midwest you have uh, I'm not sure. the I, I, I'm not sure that it is. Uh, I think this is we're seeing it on the East Coast and the West Coast. Now, I think in this core part of the country, we are seeing home values uh, staying in, in, in a more affordable range. So we're not seeing that quite as much there. That that part is, I think, regional, but especially when you have home uh, TV shows out there in the, uh, called The Fixer Upper that focuses on properties in Waco where our daughter goes to college, my daughter goes to college, and uh, and you look at what you can buy there for what the rest of the world, the West Coast and the East Coast, look at just next to nothing. You can put 200000 in and have a really nice home. So it's drawing people into these other markets. Do you see that having an impact on real estate values and the market in these higher-priced markets such as California and um, well, I, up like well, in, the, up in the Northeast? People have been leaving California for many years now and going to places like Atlanta, Texas, Las Vegas, Portland, yeah. Arizona, so that drives more demand there. And even you see Atlanta, Atlanta's home prices are really kicking in higher just because yeah. if you can find, yes. I mean, the housing cost is your number one payment. Okay. So, so the cost of shelter is, is, is if it's too much, you see this in San Francisco, you know, you, you, you're starting to get a problem where you can't get firemen, teachers, people to work in San Francisco because they can't afford the rent or a house there. So um, uh, it's, it's interesting. California has a has a NIMBY problem where they just don't want to build enough homes here, and it's it gets legislated out. So uh, uh, it, it, it's a plus for other states. It's a negative for California if they don't start building affordable homes because if the yeah. people will tell you as long as we build more homes, um, it, 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 housing should be cheaper. Was that the case in 2002 to 2006? when we were building the most homes in a 30-year period. No, housing no. is the most expensive adjusting to inflation ever recorded in U.S. history when we were building the most homes. It's the type of homes that matter. The country has to be able to supply its younger Americans with cheaper homes. Just building more homes is not the solution. We saw that in the last cycle. And right now, I don't blame the builders for not building a lot of homes. This is the main uh, thesis of mine since 2010. Don't expect them to build because the demand won't be there, but it's coming. And we need to be able to fill, fill the, the demand for cheaper, smaller homes, or we're just going to push all this inflation up when real demand comes in and people are starting to be overbidding for homes because there's not enough cheaper supply out there. That's my concern. That's a few years down the line, but uh, housing is as safe as it's ever been in the history of the U.S. Our homeowners are the safest. There's no more exotic loans. Adjusting to inflation, home prices are still 20% really below the peaks of 2006. So 
it's a, it's a healthy, slow, and steady market. There's no there's no risk in the housing market I see right now for the foreseeable future. Interesting, interesting. Well, I'm looking at the time, and I, we've got to get a few comments about Trump economic policies. What are your thoughts on the Trump economic policies? So, I so chuckle when I ask that because I know yeah. it's a lot of your comments out there, and you do a good job of staying apolitical. You don't really, you don't wade into those waters. But man, there's been this has been an interesting year. So anyway, your thoughts so on that? A lot of people, yeah, a lot of people said that. Okay, here we go. Here comes the four to five percent growth. That's not how macroeconomics work. You know, uh, uh, we have 165 million people working. So if you're saying we hire 2 million more people, the productivity of those 2 million people where they need domestic investment and, and all these things will push a $19 trillion economy to 4 to 5% sustained growth. That is borderline insane to think that way. So Trump has a lot of headline promises. It's been very difficult for him to get some things done. Uh, I would wait until 2018 to see if we get an infrastructure bill and a, and a tax reform because uh, D.C. works in, in different ways. So, so kind of when <laughs> That's an understatement. That is an understatement. When people thought we would get these things initially, I, I, I tell them, you know, it took Reagan some time to get some of these things done. So yeah. wait until 2018. But, but in general terms, demographics push economics. Labor force, I mean, uh, uh Labor productivity has been falling for G7 countries for decades. Labor force growth has been falling for decades for G7 countries. Productivity, if you want to have 3 to 4% sustained growth, you need to have productivity grow uh, at a much higher rate because we have 165 million people. Whoever told Trump there's 96 million people looking for work has did him a terrible disservice out there because the job yeah. numbers right now look pretty much where they are. Last year, it's it's actually slightly better than what I what I was expecting, but it's only slightly better. So if there was really 96 million people looking for jobs, that means at some point in the last five decades we lost all those people, and you you can't see it. That's one of the jokes that I put in the April Fool's. Show me where we lost 96 million people. So it's just not true. The real number is between 2.2 to 3.5 million people. Um, a lot of them are high school dropouts. I I talked about the the problem of drug addiction in this country. In terms yep. of the labor force, it's finally, I, I, I am so happy, it's finally getting some national play now that we have a lot of older Americans who are high school dropouts, who are addicted to drugs, who are drinking themselves to death, and these people need federal intervention, not, you know, not to be ignored. And hopefully with more and more work being done nationally, these people get the help and assistance that they need because right now we have a labor shortage. We've got 5.6 million job openings. Right yeah. now we have yeah. 165 million people working. So. Uh, I think a lot of Trump's promises were more political, but you wait until 2018 to see what actually comes into play, and then you can work off of that. Uh, um, so that's, yeah. that's just how politics I wanna, works. Alice, I want to run over to those numbers that you gave. I'm going to get Logan's comments on it. Um, when you talked about 26 million and 19 million were invisible, what was the 26 million and the 40? Well, I wrote down 49 million. I was scrambling to write my notes on what your comments were, Alice. So in the alternative credit um, request for information that the CFPB published uh, about oh, at the end of February, and this is where they cited that it was 26 million Americans are credit invisible, so they have no major credit card or to be able to measure any kind of a score. And then there's another 19 million unscorable who are too thin or too stale for a total of 45 million, according to the CFPB, okay. who would benefit from alternative credit. Interesting. I wonder if this is going to open the door. Uh, Logan, do you think there's any chance of this the door cracking a little bit to providing? So, uh, so in that context, we are very large, young, and we're very large old. Ages 17 to 29 are massive. Ages 49 to 65 are massive. Young people, especially ages 17 to 25, cannot establish credit yet. Okay, they, they, they might get one or two credit cards, maybe, but we have such a massive number of young people. Remember, ages 21 to 27 are the biggest in America right now. Those are, to, I, I would love to see the age breakdown because to me, that's just a lot of young people who are going to school. Um, and those who weren't able to go to college or maybe not be able to finish high school, because we're graduating, so 89% high school grades right now, those people probably couldn't get a card anyway. 
So I think some, some of this data we have to look at demographically related in terms of how massive our young population and old population are. Uh, so I would, I, would, I would just venture to guess that we would just see a lot of young people not be able to establish credit. I mean, I remember when I was that young, it took me a while to be able to establish credit in terms of getting a car loan, having a credit card until, and that was, you know, past, you know, uh, college years. So uh, I would think that's just, we have a lot of young people and they just haven't been able to establish credit and they maybe probably shouldn't. Uh, they should be focusing on graduating high school and going to college yeah. uh, at that point. So when they get a little bit older, yeah. you, you see a little bit more supply of credit quality people in there. Um, and whenever you see very young people, they have high FICO scores because they have no debt really. Um, uh, if they do, if they are established into credits, they tend to have high FICOs. They don't make any money, but uh, they tend to have good scores because they, they don't even have the ability to, to acquire as much debt on their on their record. Well, there is so much we could do with that, uh, but we got to hang it up, let it go there. We've gone a little bit over. It's always fun to have you on and just turn on the mic and visit with you and let our listeners benefit from this. For those that want to get a hold of Logan, uh, I first of all, Logan is a loan originator with AMC Lending Group. You're located in Orange County, are you not, Logan? Irvine, California. Irvine, California, yep. Orange County. So definitely get a hold of them. What's the best way for those that want to write you or contact you or read more? What's the best way for them to do if so? You have a, if you have a Facebook, uh, come to my Facebook page. It's charts all day. We do Facebook Lives to talk about economic situations. That's a great new technology if you want to, uh, to the fellow yes. mortgage people. Facebook Live is the way to do marketing in the future. Okay, uh, show your personality out, but we, we talk about macroeconomics in there. There's charts all day, and that's where the most engagement I get. Uh, uh, there's, you know, 27,000 followers on LinkedIn, about 10,000 on Facebook. But, uh, but Facebook <laughs> is really the easiest way to, to, to engage with me because there's a lot of people there. We basically it's, it's, it's talk about economics. We try not to get too political. And we, we basically kick out trolls who curse and yell, and we want to keep it a very lively uh, discussion on real things uh, out there. So the Facebook page is where majority of my interaction goes. That would be the best way to, to, to contact me. I don't know how you do it all. It's amazing. You are uh, one active, busy guy in social media. It's exemplary how you have been able to draw attention to yourself and what it's done for you and your marketplace in the marketplace. Do a great job. Thank you so much for joining us, Logan. Really fun to have you back, and we just so got to keep getting you back throughout America, the year. America's the, be- America's the best country, has the best demographics, and we have the biggest GDP, the biggest military. We have friendly neighbors, and don't let any of the bears tell you otherwise. That this country yes. is going down. The best days are ahead of us still because we have the best demographics out there in the, in, in the modern world right now. I agree with you, and I wag my, wave my flag as I say that. I do believe it for many reasons. So good to have you with us, everybody. Appreciate you being here. Looking forward to having you back next week. We've got Jack Nunnery coming back. We're going to get an update on the Texas Capital Bank's Correspondent Lending Division. We're looking at trends of what's going to be happening with the correspondent lending across the United States. And there's nobody, no one better to give us that update than Jack Nunnery, my good friend from Texas Capital Bank talk with you soon folks see you back here next week this has been licking on lending a weekly mortgage market update with your host david licking of transformational mortgage solutions join us again next week and thank you for listening